And I hope you understand when we see these young people and older people come up and do their memory work that though we may just hear a few minutes, there are hours and hours and hours of work that lies behind it that uh, really honors the Lord. Praise the Lord. We're a, we're a chapel that doesn't memorize verses. We memorize chapters and books. Revelation chapter 20. We'll finish up the chapter, Lord willing, today. And uh, we're still on track, yes, to finish the book this month. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We have before us today one of the most somber and sobering portions of Scripture. And uh, as I said last week, I wrote in my Bible the end number one after verse 10. Is this the end finally of the career of Satan? And after this, I have the end number two. It's God's final judgment and really the removal of unacceptable things that cannot enter into heaven. The judgment of sinners. And immediately after this, we will have the new heavens and the new earth. It's a sobering scene. It's... uh, graphically portrayed. God goes into great detail to describe what it will be like to face him in the day of judgment. He begins with a great white throne. Great because of the person sitting on it and because of the the greatness of the event. It's a white throne to indicate his purity, his holiness, his perfect justice. And the interesting thing here, he begins with heaven and earth fleeing. Now, the word that's used there is the same word that's used when we're commanded to flee youthful lusts. It's a very graphic word. And now, primarily, it certainly means that uh, the first creation will be done away with and there will be a new heaven and earth. But he uses this word to give to creation as if to indicate a sense of terror the sense of the awesomeness of the moment. Heaven and earth literally want to get out of there. And it goes on to say there's no place found for them. No place to hide, in other words. You ever had that dream where you try to run away from someone or something and your feet just don't seem to move? You ever had that? That's the picture here. If you can imagine the the, uh, the awesomeness of the scene. Heaven and earth fled from his face. Not just from him. It says from his face. And there was no place found, no place to hide. Him who sat on it, well, we know that's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
many passages in Scripture, several in John, where the Lord Jesus plainly says that all judgment has been committed to him. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who's sitting on this throne who will be performing the judgment. And, and as we think about that now, I'm glad it's him. Aren't you? This, this is a big thing. This is something I would not want on my shoulders. This is something I would not want on anyone's shoulders. I would not want to trust this to an angel. Certainly to no person. Only God himself is capable of doing something like this. What a, what a solemn responsibility. And he can be trusted with it. And it's significant, of course, that the judge is sitting there with the, with the uh, scars in his hands. I'm glad he's doing it. Certainly, I'm glad that uh, people aren't there. You know, people are prone to gossip. They're prone to make summary statements about people. Aren't they? Aren't we? We will judge people, even though we're told not to. We will summarize their lives with a few offhand remarks, with no understanding, usually wrong, usually biased. Praise God, we are not doing this. Praise God, the fates of people are not in the hands of other people. God's not like that. He's honest, he's pure, he's just, he's righteous. The Lord Jesus, of course, himself was slandered by men. And they were all lies. They hated him. And it's important that it says in 1 Peter that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. He didn't return it. It says he committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's good. He didn't care what other people said. His concern was, what's God's idea? And, of course, we know his appraisal. This is my beloved son in whom I find all my delight. Okay, verse uh, 12, it says, I saw the dead. All right. Where are the believers here? That's, that's the question that comes up in all the commentaries. It says, I saw the dead. Well, <clears throat> we can say with certainty from Scripture that uh, believers are not being judged here. And, uh, in fact, you can just look back at uh, verse 5 here to prove that. Verse 5, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Who participates in the first resurrection? Go ahead. Okay, yeah, the church goes first. Actually, there's three phases to the first resurrection. That's good, yeah. The rapture is the first phase of the first resurrection. Okay? Before the tribulation, right? With that, we talked about this before. The church is resurrected first. Then what? You may not remember this. We talked about it. It's before the tribulation. Or pardon me, it's before the millennium. Between the tribulation and the millennium. Yes, that's very good. Yes, the martyrs during the tribulation will be resurrected during that time because uh, the, God's promise is to the nation of Israel as far as uh, the son of David sitting on the throne. And so he's going to resurrect not only the martyrs of the tribulation, but also the Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers, to be ushered into the millennium. Okay? 
And certainly, um, at the end of the millennium, God will resurrect any believers who died during the millennium, although he doesn't say that. We can certainly conclude that. So there are actually three phases. And you can put that all together, and that's the first resurrection. The point being that they are the ones who are safe in Christ, whether Old Testament, church, or uh, tribulation and millennium believers. We're all saved for the one Savior, and we're all safe in him. Okay? Well, he goes on to say, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Why? Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God, and so on. And in fact, um, at this great white throne judgment, if uh, believers, saved people, are present, not for judgment, but as witnesses, they would be different. In fact, they have resurrection bodies now fit for heaven. <clears throat> the question is, are they present at all? Now, God is silent about it. And so, uh, you can't argue from silence. Uh, everybody's in agreement as far as a believers being present for judgment. No, they're not going to be judged. They're, they're already saved in Christ. There is no more reckoning of their sins. Our sins are under the blood of Christ and will not be brought up again. No double indemnity in God's court. I, I believe that since this is such a major event and it's a demonstration of the judgment and the righteousness of God, that believers will witness this. You can uh, say, you can believe that they won't, that's fine, because we're not going to argue from any passage. It doesn't say whether they're present or not. But I believe the angels and believing Christians will see this proceeding because it's another demonstration of the person of God. If that's the case, then what a lesson for us who know Christ to see this. It will not only be a demonstration again of the justice of God. Remember, God is in the business of revealing himself. We've been stressing that throughout the book. But what a uh, source of thanksgiving if we were to see this litany of one after another people coming before God and being justly sentenced for their sins and realizing that should have been me and realizing it's only because of the grace of God and the payment of the Lord Jesus Christ that it isn't. Okay, well, um, it says, I saw the dead, the small <clears throat> and great. There's going to be a, a uh, you can make a list of who's who from the people that will be standing here. I'll tell you. A lot of famous people are going to be standing here. A lot of rich and famous. A lot of celebrities. But there are going to be nobodies at this scene. There's not going to be any greatness in that sense. When he says small and great, he means greatness in the sense of men thought of them as great, great rulers, you know. Today, the big people, of course, are performers, you know, entertainers, sports figures, and so on. However they were great in the eyes of the world, they're nothing here. I'll tell you, they're all standing on level ground together. The skid row bum and the billionaire. No difference. Which is, there's not, you're not going to be impressed. Nobody's going to be impressed, you know, by so-and-so. Wow, I'm standing next to so-and-so. The focus is going to be on him who sits on the throne. I'll tell you, if heaven and earth flee from that face, it's going to attract everyone's attention. They're going to be riveted on the face of Jesus Christ, the judge. And I think there'll be some weak knees in the audience there. <clears throat> Interesting, it says, 
standing before God. Some of them say before the throne. That's okay. It's Jesus is on the throne. They're standing before God and before the throne. And the point is, we're going to talk about this as we go on. It's a personal accountability. Here it is. People joke. You know, people make all these snide comments about here come to judge. And I'm going to go to hell and be with all my friends and all these other things. And they joke about uh, God is dead. You know, God has gone to a back room or something like that. No. Each person, moment by moment, by the way, is personally related to God. What I mean is you derive every breath from him. Now, a lot of people don't like to admit that or even think about it, but it's true. With that close of a coupling for your whole life, then it makes sense that finally you get to see him face to face and see the one who sustained you and maintained you all that time. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> says verse 13. I'm skipping ahead to one phrase here. This is important. Because it says, um, and they were judged, each one, according to his words. That's important. It's not a blanket judgment. It's one by one. Now, doesn't that sound like God? You know, it's not going to be just kind of summary. All right, you sinners, you're going to hell. Each individual is going to have his or her time one-on-one with Jesus Christ. Face-to-face. The focus is going to be on you now. We're going to talk about it. Well, it says they were judged out of books. And uh, we can deduce what's in the books because they they were judged according to the works. The books are the deeds, the things that people have done. There was an old show... Even I was young when it was on. It was called This Is Your Life. You ever heard of it? Anybody ever seen it? Yeah? They used to get people in there, and um, often it was just to reunite them with someone they hadn't seen for a long time. But the host would open this book, and he would just start reading, you know, you were born and so and so. And they would recount events through the person's life as they went through, you know, and then you met so your old friend, you haven't seen them for 30 years, and here they are, you know, and they come running out, and they embrace, and there's all these tears and stuff, you know. <laughs> but when they talked about them from the book, it was highlights, you know, it was, it was good things, it was fond memories, things you'd like to talk about, things you'd like to hear about. Now, that's where we need to understand, this is not going to be like that, okay? What is, let, let's say I was going to be there, what would my book be like? What would your book be like? Well, first of all, I hate to disappoint you, but there's not going to be any great accomplishments or achievements or, you know, like an award ceremony or, you know, uh, the Olympics and the award ceremonies or the Oscars and the Emmys. It's not going to be how great you are and the things you have done. Why? Because it's God who is doing the recounting. And if there was anything good in your life or any talent or any ability, it came from him. (laughs) You follow me? So why is he going to talk how great you were and all the wonderful things you did when it came from him to start with? You follow that? There's no point. Why would he go on and on about all this greatness and goodness when it wasn't yours? The only thing he's going to recount is what you're responsible for. And you're not responsible for the greatness of whatever you have, whatever talent, 
You know, popularity, skill, physical prowess, intelligence, whatever. That came from him. It's going to be things that you alone are responsible for and, in fact, will be responsible for. It's a true account of your life, what you have done, what you alone can claim responsibility for. And I believe it's going to be a day-by-day accounting. Can you imagine that? A day-by-day accounting. Moment by moment. No exaggeration. Nothing added. Nothing left out. Exactly true. Your life. You talk about deja vu. Boy. Moment by moment, as the Lord Jesus Christ factually starts at the beginning and goes all the way to the end. Now, we think, when we think about the Great White Throne, a lot of people think, well, yeah, okay, there's this recounting of all these terrible things, all these sins and so on. Yes, that's true. But there's, there's an element, I think, that people don't often think about. It's going to be a deep awareness of, how can I put it, how he was kind to you your whole life. How he sustained you. How he blessed you. How he took care of you. You're going to understand it so deeply at that point. And that, I think, is going to be the most deeply convicting part of this scene. Understanding that you lived your whole life by the very grace and gift of this one and yet ignored him that whole time. In fact, wanted nothing to do with him. And now it's too late. You're going to hear the times. He'll recount, I believe, for example, the times when you knew, because he knows the heart, when you knew he was speaking to you and you turned away. You put him off. Imagine this. Tom could appreciate this. Imagine a court with no lawyers and no jury. And the accused is brought into the court And the judge begins to recount verbally, in detail, every action that the accused did. I mean, every little thing. Step by step. Every thought. Every word. Without fail. Without inaccuracy. Exactly the way it is. Wouldn't that be great? That's what it's going to be, you see. That's why you see no uh, jury here and no lawyers. The Lord Jesus is going to recount, you know, uh, May 8th, 2002. You talked about so-and-so. You know, you, you got angry with so-and-so. You had lustful thoughts at 2 p.m. It lasted until 3.20 on and on and on and on, moment by moment. You know, as you think about this, believers, what a time to witness, huh? What a time to witness to someone. You know why I say that? If you've witnessed anyone, what's the most difficult part to get across to someone? Conviction of sin, right? That's, the, that's what God wants to work on. The hardest thing for a person to accept is, I am a sinner, pure. I deserve hell. No excuses. 
That's all. <laughs> that's achieved right here. You know, we're past that step. There's not going to be anyone here who is not going to be deeply convicted and convinced I am a sinner. I'll tell you, if Isaiah, that godly man, and Peter, in the best of times, seeing the Lord, one said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. And the other, Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Here, I mean, they didn't have their life recounted by him personally, moment by moment. Wow. To stand there and hear this moment by moment from the lips of the Savior without exaggeration. And I, there are billions of people and I believe God is not going to hurry through it. You know, the, God, the Bible teaches throughout it there's no secret thing that's not going to be brought to light. God is just. And He's going to do it right here. And nothing missed. You know, nothing swept under the carpet. It's going to be overwhelming. It's going to be just. You see, there's going to be such proof that I, that you, deserve hell. But the worst, like I said, is that you're going to face the one whom you abused. That's going to be the worst part of it. Hebrews 6, in talking about the apostate, has an interesting illustration. Not that everybody's an apostate, but the, but the illustration applies here. God, in talking about the person who has received benefits from God, hearing the word of God, understanding it, it says, uh, having tasted the Holy Spirit, tasted of the uh, things to come. In other words, someone where, someone where God has worked in their hearts, and yet when all is said and done, they reject it. He compares that person to ground, to earth. It says, that drinks up the rain. And you have, when you have earth that drinks up the rain and you're, and you're planting something there, you've got two kinds of earth. He says you've got the kind of earth that, that when it, it, it does that and it, and it receives the nourishment, it yields herbs, it says, good fruit. It says that ground is blessed. But the earth that drinks up the rain and only yields thistles and thorns, the only thing to do with it is to curse it, he says. Do you understand that? He's saying, imagine going out in your garden, you know, and you, and you plant seeds and you fertilize it and you water it and you loosen the soil. You tend it day after day after day, looking forward to a nice uh, harvest of, I don't know, tomatoes or pumpkins or something. And finally, after all that work and all that stuff you put into it, it comes up with, with thistles. Now, I mean, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't curse it, but you'd be a little upset, wouldn't you? You know, you'd say, after all that work, what do I get? What a waste. And that's what he's saying there in Hebrews 6. And that's really a picture of the typical unsaved person, the person who doesn't know God, who day after day receives God's benefits, like that rain coming down, drinks it up, and uses it only for selfish purposes, self-pleasure. Your judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, as, as you look at him, you're going to realize that he's blameless toward you. He's been kind, generous, loving, patient, day after day, week after week. And it's going to dawn on you at that point that you just spurned his love. 
And it's no wonder that David said in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Yeah, he sinned against a lot of people, certainly Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband, certainly the whole kingdom, really. And yet he realized the worst thing about sin was that it's against God. Okay, well, as I said, you don't see any lawyers here. There's no uh, plea. There's no argument. No rebuttal. Think about this. Why is there no plea? Why is there no place for, um, but, but Lord? Well, it's because the one that will be sitting on the throne, who had already been charged with the person here, if it's you, your sin, already did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. When your sin was put to his account, he said, if it would be possible, let this cup pass from me. And the answer to him was, no. There is no other way. If the answer to the Son of God, who had done no wrong when charged with your sin, if the answer to him was, no, then to paraphrase another verse, God who spared not his own Son, how can he spare you? You know, you can get down on your knees and plead three times and pray and everything else. It's too late. Today is the day of salvation. Right now, while you're living and breathing and receiving the blessings of God, here it's going to be too late. And there'll be no, no place for pleas or arguments or buts. Okay, well, finally, the, uh, the punishment. Now, the phrase here in several of the verses, is a lake of fire. And uh, I want to talk about that for a minute. I think we have some wrong ideas about what it's like. First of all, it says the lake of fire. It doesn't say a lake of fire. So there's one lake of fire, a place to receive sinners. Actually, it says in the other passages that it's reserved for the devil and his angels. That's what the original purpose of it from God and it's where all sinners will go, angels or people. I think sometimes, uh, certainly I've seen it dramatized. P- people picture hell uh, is kind of like a place of caverns, you know, caves with flames sort of licking up here and there, but people walking around in the middle of the flames. Well, that doesn't fit the description, does it? It says a lake of fire. The other misconception I think often is so you kind of get this people sort of standing, you know, submerged, maybe up to here in this lake with sort of flames licking up around them. No. It says it's a lake of fire. First of all, this is not like any lake we've ever seen because it's not a lake of water. It's a lake of fire, but it's a lake. It's a large body of fire. And you don't see people standing up in it, you know. The point is, those who are going to be in the lake of fire will be submerged in this lake of fire. You're not going to swim in it. You're not going to stand in it. We know it's a place of torment. Jesus himself used that word. By the way, of the 12 occurrences of the word hell in the New Testament, Jesus said it 11 times. So we're not resting on 
faulty ground here. It's a place of pain. It's a place of pain that doesn't end. The phrase Jesus used many times is a place of darkness, blackness of darkness. So there goes another misconception. People have this idea of, you know, uh, you kind of look around and, and see what's going on around you. It's blackness of darkness. So there's no visual relief. You ever been in a cave and they've turned the lights out? I mean, that's the classic example. And they do that and they say, now put your hand right here. And you can't see it. There's not, to put as a physicist would put it, there's not one photon down there. There's not an element of light. Blackness of darkness. No relief, no visual relief. <clears throat> what you're going to hear, Jesus says, is it'll be weeping and wailing. I would expect that if it's pain and torment. In uh, this book, Revelation in chapter 14, verse 6, he adds this. He says that there's no rest day or night. You know, we might think there might be some relief if there's a night and people can sleep, but there is none. It doesn't stop. You see, there's no rest, no relief. And <clears throat> really, there's an important idea here. It has to be this way because it's away from the presence of the Lord. We said that last week when we talked about the millennium. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was ruling, or I said past tense in the, in the passage, will be for a thousand years, it has to be prosperous. It has to be a time of peace because of who He is. But those who have made the conscious choice of wanting nothing to do with God and living their life that way will get their wish fulfilled in not experiencing the presence of God ever again. And the problem with that is that if there's anything good, if there's any joy or peace or pleasure, it all comes from God, one way or another. And where God is not, there is none of that. It's so significant <clears throat> that the rich man in the book of Luke, where the Lord Jesus portrayed the rich man in, in Hades, you know the passage, that when he wanted relief, he was told, remember that in your life you had what? Your good things. That's a significant statement. There it is, that word good. Good is a past tense. It's a forgotten word for sinners in hell. Anything good. Rest. Joy. Vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction, and here it is, from the presence of the Lord, where He is not, away from Him, and all that He is, and all that He has to offer, and all that He did give for you for a lifetime. He says in Psalm 16, in your presence, talking about the Lord, there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Out of His presence, there is none of that. 
next time, Lord willing, when we look at heaven, there is a phrase God uses over and over again. It's called no more. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more death. It's a wonderful description. Anything that hurt, anything that was bad, anything that was sinful is no more. Not ever again. Isn't that great? Praise God. Well, you can apply that to hell. It's a place of no mores. No more peace, no more joy, no more hope, no more pleasure, no more happiness. They're all gone forever, left behind. As I said, it's a confirmation, really, by God, of a choice already made. We make the choice in this life. Now, when I'm talking about this, let me ask you, where do you stand right now? Have you chosen Christ? Because not to choose Christ is to choose hell. Not to choose Christ is to reject God and to say, oh, that's all right, I'll live my life the way I want, thank you very much. And you can do that. And God in His kindness and His patience will continue to give you breath by breath, heartbeat by heartbeat, I don't know how many and for how long. And you don't know when it's going to end. But He will ratify that choice if you do not change now. The time to turn to Him is now and not to wait. Why does God write this? Why does He put this in the Bible? It's a warning. Here, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, He's saying, this is where your life ends and by the way, your life is just a vapor. You know, you young people think, oh, I got my whole life ahead of me. It's, I don't see any end to it. It's going to go on forever. You'd be surprised. It seems like I just graduated high school yesterday. And it was 40 years ago. But then eternity begins. And that doesn't end. And it's not going to be long, I think, before this life is going to be just a, a vague memory. You know, we saw when the devil was thrown in the lake of fire here in this book, it says where the beast and the prophet are. They've been there a thousand years. And they're still there. And they're still there right now. I read uh, an article on CNN. You remember the bridge in Oklahoma that uh, collapsed after the barge hit it? And uh, it was interesting that in one case, uh, there was really a miraculous um, deliverance, if you will. There was a truck driver going down the freeway. And as most of you know, uh, there's a little bit of a rise before this. There's a section of bridge that was just gone, like several hundred yards. And it was uh, about 70 feet down into the muddy waters of the Arkansas River. But as people approached it, you couldn't see that the part was gone. And they were coming up there 70 miles an hour. And they said, even after the break, for five minutes, because there was no, no one to warn them, people just continued to just drive right off down into the water. And that's what one of the witnesses described here. And there was a, uh, a fishing competition uh, up the river a little ways on the bank, and they were watching this. And they, they, they just stood there helpless. They said, just watching the cars come and go over and drop down into the, the muddy waters. It was deep water, fast-moving water, and so muddy that once you're under, you can't see a thing. A horrible way to die. And there was one fellow, <clears throat> his name is, um, well, his last name is Barton, who describes a particular incident where the fishermen were there and they wanted to do something and one of them had a flare gun. 
And so he shot this flare gun. There was a semi coming, an 18 wheeler. He shot this flare gun and it hit the windshield of the truck. Miraculously. And the truck driver stopped. He slammed on his brakes. They locked up. He skidded and he came to a stop with the front wheels hanging over the, the ledge. Imagine what that truck driver felt at that moment, huh? Imagine what would have happened if he'd ignored that flare. But he, when he saw the flare, he said, there's something wrong here. And he hit his brakes immediately. And because of that, he was saved. Here's, here's the way he put it in an interview. I kept seeing these big splashes at the foot of the bridge and just did not realize what it was. This is the fisherman. Until I saw a semi go over and it was just one car after another just hitting the end of the bridge at 70 miles per hour. Nobody could see that the bridge was gone. That went on for almost five minutes. Just one car after another. And you know, fortunately, there was a bunch of fishermen in a tournament. They were up and down the river there in that area. And a couple of friends of mine, who now are my heroes, they had enough foresight to pull out a flare gun and shoot at one of the semis headed toward the drop-off. From where I was, it looked like uh, Alton, that's his friend, is a heck of a shot. It looked like he bounced it off the windshield and that truck locked up and stopped with his front wheels hanging over the bridge. Then he slammed it in reverse and backed up. Those are important words. He turned around. He was warned of destruction to come and he stopped and he backed up. That's what God wants you to do. You see, the word repent means to turn around. And right now, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you may pretend to ignore me here this morning, but I know you hear me. You're heading down that freeway toward the bridge that's out. And this passage we've just been listening to this morning is God's flare to you. Now, I don't know how many other flares he shot your way. You do. You know there's been times when God has been speaking to you. If the truck driver had ignored that flare, he'd have gone over. And we know what would have happened. If you ignore the flare of God, it's going to be much worse. We've talked about it this morning. And the reason God puts this in here is to warn you. Now, there's a, another book here that we haven't talked a lot about. It's the book of life. It's also called the Lamb's Book of Life. Yeah, the Lamb is Jesus. And if you notice, the only way to escape the lake of fire is to have your name in, the, in that book of life. Is it there? Because the only way it's put there is in this life. Now, it has to be done today. And the only way it's done is by turning around, turning from your sin, turning to God, and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. And then be saved from the destruction that God describes here. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you don't just let us go on our way, die, face judgment, and then learn about the lake of fire. Thank you, Lord, that you warn us ahead of time. Thank you, Lord, that there's a way out. Praise God. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has already answered for our sins. If we but trust him, we can be saved today. Oh, Lord, we ask for anyone here, if they have been ignoring your flares, that they might be like that truck driver today and stop. Pay attention. Say, Lord, I hear you speaking to me. I need to turn around.
and flee to Jesus. May they do that in his name. Amen.